0: we all misbehave sometimes want to change the world indulge in some
1: bad behavior hello and welcome to bad behavior my name is nicola and i'm rosalind and how have you been bad this week rosalind okay
0: Nicola, we've wanted to talk about the idea of choosing child-free on this podcast for a really long time. And I say child-free rather than childless because childless makes it seem like you're missing out on something and child-free is more of a decision that you've made. This has been on my mind recently because it was my birthday a couple of days ago and I'm getting older. You sure? Um, (laughs) Stop. So... Look, I've got some well-meaning, beautiful, wonderful role models who happen to be older women in my life, and they want me to have kids. And as I get older, I feel sort of a pressure to plan it out and to have children, and You know, I was thinking about that and I realized that it's true. You know, there is a huge amount of pressure on women to have kids. It's kind of this idea of motherhood is conflated with the idea of womanhood. And if you don't want to have children, you don't want to be a mother, then there's something wrong with you. You know, you're not a proper woman in some way. And, you know, you'll change your mind later when your biological clock kicks in. And, you know, it will be the best thing you ever did in life, you know. And it's crazy that it's just something that, I personally
1: never really thought about. I haven't gotten to the stage in life where they don't really inquire about whether I want to have children Um, yet. I will prepare myself for that inevitable question though. It's probably coming (laughs) up soon. But yeah, I definitely feel the pressure and I think it's only in the last three or four years that I've actually stepped back and considered... What that means, you know, I've always intrinsically just thought that I wanted to have children and that it would be a natural part of the progression of my life, but I didn't ever properly interrogate what that meant. And so when you kind of learn the things that you've been taught as fact and not necessarily <laughs> the truth, it puts things in a new perspective. And I'm really having a good time kind of thinking about what my life would look like without children or what it would look like with, that, with children or what it means to be a mother. Could I be a mother if I, you know, didn't have a partner? Like those kinds of things are what I've been thinking about. So,
0: Well, it's the fairy tale that we've been sold, right? It's it's like the nursery rhyme. What is it? First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes a baby in a baby carriage. I suppose that in some ways the success of a woman's life is tied up to children in a, in a strange way and sort of questioning
1: that and interrogating
0: that idea is really interesting, whether or not you decide to have children or
1: not. Still, thinking about the question is the, the difference, right? It's like that moment before you choose where you have autonomy over your body and you think, oh, okay, so – I have this ability as a woman, well, some of us do, some of us don't, and making the choice to be a mother instead of thinking that it's something that every woman has to do, a level they have to unlock.
0: A level, yeah, in the game of life.
1: (laughs) And it's such a radical notion too, like throughout my life I think it's so interesting to think about all the different times where you just get taught that women have children and then being a woman is to be nurturing and to take care of people and to raise kids all these things are are just intrinsic to your value
0: when actually that can look different to different people and you know you don't have to biologically birth a child to be mothering in life or to mentor young people and you also don't have to do that at all. And you can still be a woman. You can still identify as a woman.
1: I know, absolutely. The world is your oyster.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I feel like you say that so often to me. You used to say the world is my oyster and I am its pearl whenever (laughs) you were about to
1: do something scary. I think that comes with a little asterisk, right? Where the world is your oyster if you have the space and the privilege to choose I think I can track very distinctly when I kind of came across the idea that
0: I have this image of you like Sherlock Holmes like with a little (laughs)
1: glass. that's exactly what I could do I could go back through the years and pinpoint kind of an exact time period in which I had the the radical notion of oh maybe I do not have to have children maybe that's not what i want
0: well this week i kind of am intrigued by the idea of taking this discussion and bringing it to a place that maybe we haven't even talked about yet nikki which is climate i'm very passionate about climate change as you know you are as well and this question of course is being raised within that discussion so we found some incredible guests to explore the idea of child free and climate change We have two guests for this episode, the co-founders of Conceivable Future, Megan Kalman and Josephine Fiorelli. Conceivable Future is a network in the USA led by women, which works to raise awareness around the threat climate change poses to reproductive justice. They host house parties where they lead discussions around these issues and work to demand the end of US fossil fuel subsidies.
2: I'm Megan Coleman. I am one of the founders of Conceivable Future. By day, I am a professor and I also a local politician.
3: And my name is Josephine Ferrarelli. I am the other co-founder, co-director of Conceivable Future. And when I'm not doing that, I am writing, teaching yoga and organizing in my community. We started this organization almost immediately upon meeting each other in the late autumn of 2014. And it arose out of a conversation that we had, the first conversation we had. We're both at a sort of a strange moment in our activist lives and our personal lives where we were looking for ways to connect more directly with what the what the human and personal stakes of the climate crisis are. We were looking around us and we we're seeing a lot of a lot of good work being done but somehow this heart connection was missing, this way of really um, really drawing people in because we knew people cared but there was this disconnect. So for us at that time I was articulating it like I couldn't imagine having a child in the world that I was seeing come into being around me. And Megan can tell you more about where where she was coming from with that. But I think our our immediate sense was if this is at the heart of our reasons for doing our work, then we are very likely to find that it is similarly motivating for other people and that we dig in here and will really help connect people from all different parts of life to this movement.
2: Josephine and I actually met at a house concert. We um, we were introduced to each other hastily by a mutual friend a few minutes before the concert started. And she said something like, you both do climate work, you know, sit together and chit-chat. So we chit-chatted for a couple of minutes. And within the first five minutes, we were like already way deep in this conversation. And we were strangers at that time. So it was an interesting, profound, like extremely rapid intimacy that emerged there. And one of the things that that exchange taught me besides like, boy, do I need to be organizing with this woman was like, that if it can come up so quickly, given half an opportunity, then the world has probably been waiting a really long time for this conversation in one form or another. For a lot of people of our generation, Josephine and I were both 30 when we met this question of like, what do our families look like? What will they look like? How has this crisis shaped our reproductive landscapes and the landscapes of our future? That was really what was present. And so that's where we dug in.
3: I want to say too that doing the work has really like turned the story on its head. I think for me, certainly, I think for us and for many of our participants as well, that a lot of this has been a process of unlearning a really harmful narrative around the way that reproduction and the climate crisis relate, right? That we all grew up. Um, especially white middle-class people grew up with this narrative that overpopulation is one of the main drivers and that it's this very unquestioned piece of dogma that we proceed with and so we, we internalize guilt about wanting to have a baby, all that stuff. And we locate our activist potential in this choice that's essentially very personal and not substantively political, right? We can make political meaning out of it, but I think a lot of us, before we started having this public conversation, we're wasting a lot of energy trying to come up with the right answer. And it was really only through getting together and having this conversation out loud and public that we started to see that there is no right answer. It's the fact of the question, the fact that we're asking this question, that's the call to action, that's the, the real heart of what we're pointing to here.
0: A really important distinction that was made really clear to me through talking to Megan and Josephine is that this discussion is not about population control. This is not an argument about whether or not women should have children. This is a discussion around how climate change has raised considerations around childbirth and child rearing you know what kind of world are we providing to our children it's a fantastic way to talk to especially women I will say but a fabulous way to talk to people about climate change and to say look this is affecting you you are concerned about these things and that the effects of climate change will impact you in really personal ways. And we should be talking about that more. That was made really clear. And it was funny, you know, I I didn't ask them whether or not they personally were going to have children. I think that comes up later on. And and I think that that's really key. It's a key distinction to talk about. Question is the part that's important, that we are looking at something that for so many people is Just this not even question thing that you do. You know, we talked about the pressure that we have to be mothers. And yet climate change is one of the big things that come up when you go, should I, shouldn't I? I'm a climate um, activist and I know a lot of different women in the climate space. And I have so many discussions about this, you know should I have children? Maybe I shouldn't because the world will look so different or it's another person out in the world creating waste or, you know, all of these different things. It's just, it's so intriguing to me and it's so separate from the answer. I don't really care whether or not someone says yes or no. That's a
1: personal thing. The question itself plants a seed, right? It gets you thinking, about motherhood in a way that maybe you hadn't considered before you need to consider the world that you're bringing your children into outside of just succumbing to the pressures of of being a mother I think absolutely it's such an important part of choosing to have a child should be thinking about how they're going to grow up thinking about what kind of legacy you're leaving for them in the way that your generation has left the earth.
0: And it's clear from the work that Conceivable Future does that this is a pretty common question. This is something that does raise a lot of key issues with people and that is in itself hugely important to interrogate, the fact that across the world people are thinking about their reproductive rights within this space and we're not talking about you know, how to solve it enough.
1: Yeah, I think it's really, really important as a way to access the child-free conversation. For me, it's been really transformative to learn about the gendered impacts of climate change and then from there learning about how the world that I would be bringing my children into. And it certainly, like, it doesn't leave me with much hope you know I don't really I don't feel very good about bringing children into the world right now so I don't know I think it's it's one of the first ways in which I've actually been able to have some perspective from the conversation it feels like a valid reason you know I don't I I feel like before I haven't had a valid reason
0: a valid reason not to have children
1: yeah yeah, I think so. Do you need one? I mean, that's the thing, though. It's what I tell myself, right? So if I chose not to have children, then it would have to be for a reason. A lot of that is what I've been, what society teaches you as well, though. It's the pressure that we were talking about. But this, again, just like connecting the dots. As I've gotten older and learned more about climate change and the advocacy in that space, I think that it's really opened up up the child-free discussion for me.
0: I remember one of the first conversations I had around this issue, it had been brought up to me by a friend of mine who is also a climate advocate, and she had kind of brought it up to me in a way that was really nonchalant, like, of course I've thought about this. And I don't know that I had really at the time. And I remember going back and sitting down with my mother and having a discussion with her around climate change should impact whether I have a kid and whether that would change it for me. I don't know. It was a really interesting moment where she was really shocked by the fact that this was even a consideration. And even though it made sense, there was a moment of kind of disbelief that we were having this discussion. But I think it brought home to her how serious I was about this and how serious I found the issue and how scary
1: I found it. It's certainly a difficult topic. Like I have not had that conversation with my mum, but I would be really interested too because I think that both of our versions of motherhood have been really impacted by what our own mothers have taught us.
0: Well, your mum is very interested in in that because it's her job.
1: Yeah. My mum is a childbirth educator and lactation consultant and, She's done some incredible work in that space and I grew up in a household that was very open about childbirth and we talked about all the specifics of it and it was just, it was a very open and honest conversation Um, that I grew up around. And there was also a level of it being like a sacred thing for a woman or one of the most incredible things that you could do was give birth to a child. So that in its own way has led to, to pressure for sure. But I am definitely... I think this episode has given me the language to talk about it with her and I think it would be a really interesting conversation to have with someone who works with mothers and kids every day. Yeah, I just, I want to hear about more women who are choosing to have this conversation, more families, more people, like it's, it's really powerful.
2: coming to terms with the fact that we were not in tr- taking good enough care of the future that I would feel comfortable having a child which doesn't mean I'm not going to do it but that I had to ask myself this question was a, was a nasty shock these questions are not new they are the climate crisis brings them up again but I think the fundamental thing that we're all getting at across time and space when we're asking this question is Whose future are these institutions protecting? Why have we set up the world so that it isn't safe for the next generation?
0: Is climate change in essence gendered? I wonder if you have any, any thoughts on that.
3: I think that every major social crisis breaks down along class lines, along gender lines, along racial lines. Everything that was happening is still happening. The terrain becomes more uneven. The crisis has this scale that's beyond human scale. Right, And so there's no aspect of human life that isn't shaped in some way by what we're experiencing now or what we will experience in terms of it. So pretty much any aspect of it you want to pick, you can think about it with gender in mind. The stuff that seems most relevant now, especially because the coronavirus has this kind of microcosm of the climate crisis. When there's a disaster, when something unforeseen happens, the people who are most situated to help other people are the people who've been doing that already. So those are care workers, those are family members, those are informal and formal networks of support, right? So yes, there's disaster relief, there's sort of a showier dimension of this that gets kind of hauled out in the direct aftermath of big events like this. But the people who are already doing that work continue to do that work, and they do it with fewer resources, and their workload is magnified. And so that happens in like individual households, and it happens in organizing at the grassroots level, and it happens at every other level of power.
2: It's another place where the climate crisis is gendered, that the problem of overpopulation, and I say that in qu- scare quotes because I think it's bogus, or, or largely bogus, is it's self-gendered, right? Women are blamed for having too many babies. This is not a question uh, that applies to men for the most part, you know, and sort of like all of the finger wagging about the behavior of the womb, uh, whether that's too many children or too few children or people like you should be having children, which is like terribly coded language for usually classism and racism or some combination. The policing of the production of the next generation happens only on or primarily on women's bodies. I'm not saying that very eloquently, but when you look at the history of fascist governments, right, when you look at places where there are sociopolitical and ideological agendas that have to do with forcing people to reproduce or forcing them not to reproduce, that happens on the landscape of women's bodies for the most part. And as we enter an era where the sort of combined pressures of climate plus the fight about contraception and abortion that is unfolding all, you know, certainly all the way across the United States and to different degrees around the world. But you have this battleground being fought on the physical self. You know, and I'm using these categories. Gender is bigger than male and female. But and I use these categories sort of as I mean to be inclusive. And I also mean to be historically accurate, which is to say that like normally it's people who are either identified as women by somebody else or identify themselves as women. And that's another place where like this fight shows up in ways that don't affect men in the same way.
0: One of the things that Conceivable Future does is they get testimonies from women, right, and sort of collects those stories. How does hearing those stories from women affect what you do and affect you?
2: This is an interesting question because I think Josephine and I both kind of came into this work thinking that hearing a lot of people's stories would help us, quote, make a decision. You know, I would say that after five, almost six years of doing this, I have a much fuller and like more nuanced appreciation for everybody's position, for like all of the gazillions of stories that we've heard. And we've heard a lot, right? Like in the house parties, there are a number of themes that come up in conversations. In the testimonies, there's a number of themes that come up. We see those over and over again, but they look a little bit different on everybody. And so hearing hearing like the richness and the breadth of experience is something that has been really humbling and really profound. In the beginning of the Feminine Mystique is the chapter called "The Problem That Has No Name," and she's writing about getting letters from women all over the United States, being like, "I feel like there's something wrong," and you know, I have a husband and two children and a house and a, you know, a white picket fence or whatever whatever I have that are the sort of markers of health that I'm supposed to have and the markers of well being, and I still feel like I there's a problem and I don't know what the name is, and so she titles the beginning of this book the problem that has no name. And the book, you know, goes on to talk about all of these issues and in naming sexism, right? You give the problem a name, you give the problem leverage through giving it a name and and leverage shifts systems. Um, And so I would say that our testimonies are designed to function in a similar way. Like that's a story that we tell sometimes as a way to just sort of put into focus why we think there's value in doing that. But I also think there's value in people telling their own stories and owning their own truth, right? There's value for the person who's sharing. There's value for whoever hears it. And, and those things are not the same, but
3: they're both valuable. Testimonies have this other work that they do, which is that when I make mine and I share it in my social network, the people that are seeing it are people that know me and they might know me a little bit or a lot. They might be my family. They won't necessarily have heard this from me. When I actually sat in front of the camera to tell this story, I was speaking to a friend who was holding the camera and I knew that everybody who knew me and was interested could watch this now and so I was really kind of revealing something about myself that that despite the fact that we'd started this organization was still more intimate and still more vulnerable than I had been before. So giving people the opportunity to do that was also an invitation to them to to allow the climate crisis and all of the ways that it's shaping our lives to be closer to the center of their life as well, to let people know that it's an absolute priority and to let people know why and what that, how that colors their experience.
0: A Conceivable Future testimony is a statement around how the climate crisis is shaping someone's intimate decisions, such as childbearing and parenting decisions. Testimonies are often made by women at Conceivable Future house parties. They are personal and heartfelt and showcase some of the varied concerns people have, whilst never being prescriptive about other people's decisions. Josephine and Megan kindly allowed us to include an audio clip from one of the Conceivable Future testimonies.
4: So my name is Mira Singani Jorgensen and um, I'm 43 years old and I'm born and raised in Chicago of two immigrants from Gujarat, India. Um, I have a daughter who's going to be nine later this year and um, there are just a lot of things that I think about on a daily basis um, about the planet and what the planet is going through right now and what it may potentially go through. Um, as my daughter gets older so before I decided to have my daughter um, so I was married I'm gonna I'm gonna get very personal in my um, I was married and um, at the time my uh, now late husband wanted to have a child and um, I was very on the fence about it Uh, and it was precisely because of uh, climate change and I and as you become a parent and you see what, you know, the, the baby industry, the, the child industry, and, you know, the desire to sort of be part of the pack of other parents, you know, you start to do these things that you probably wouldn't do. You st- sort of start compromising, like, okay, well, I'm going to get goodie bags for all the 30 kids at the party, and then everything in those goodie bags is made of plastic, and um, you just sort of end up in a place where you're thinking, well, this is kind of what I didn't want from my parenting journey, and you have to scale back. Um, So um, I think that I'm a relatively conscious person when it comes to what we consume, and I explained to my daughter that we don't need everything, that we see in commercials and um, I occasionally think about having another child, um, but the same questions pop up when it comes to what's happening to our planet and what what would the world look like for my daughter and potentially another child if I have one. The biggest thing that I did not make a connection with because the narrative that I've had for so long is there is a direct relationship between reproduction, consumption, and the climate crisis. And for me, it was more people, more consumption, more CO2 emission. And what I'm hearing is, there's been a clear and pervasive effort on the parts of uh, industry to um to sort of forge this narrative that it's on the individuals or it's on the the reproductive couples um that you know have less children um and and what i'm hearing tonight is the conversation is really about uh what we um want these industries to do, which is to stop behaving in a way that is um, egregiously affecting our planet.
2: The individual level that makes people pay attention, though, I think is responsible for one of the biggest fallacies in Neoliberal organizing and specifically neoliberal climate organizing, right? Which is that just because it's the individual level that makes you pay attention or the heart stories that makes you connect doesn't mean that individual behavior modification is how we solve the problem. And that's like, that's a rub that we have come into contact with a lot. And Josephine alluded to this at the beginning of our conversation, but we have been socialized as a generation in a lot of ways to like think of your womb as your like the sum total of your political impact right there was this series of articles that came out of sweden a couple years ago from lund university nobody looked them up they're not worth reading but um, uh, among them <laughs> the claims in there was like the most climate conscious thing you can do is to have one fewer kid and that kind of messaging redirects attention away from the system that is producing the problems and towards individual people and People our age have grown up with this, you know, change your light bulbs, drive a Prius. Those are important behavior modifications, right? But they're not systemic. And we're not taught to think systemically. And there's a lot of reasons for that, right? Our political culture and our economic culture is, is one of them. But um, but that heart connection, right? The challenge in this type of organizing is to move from the heart connection that brings you in to the systemic work that shifts the institutions and the environment in which we're all living.
3: So there's this problem of scale that's not just the climate crisis is enormous and we individuals are so small. It's also we view this issue as something to be taken on privately. There's a degree of like shame and guilt around, oh, I'm going to do the best I can to be the greenest person I can, but I'm never going to mention it to another living soul, which is really pervasive and has been really pervasive, at least in my world, the people that I know. There's always been this sort of social taboo of talking about the climate crisis, because it immediately brings to mind all this guilt we feel about how we're consuming. Instead of provoking the question, why is it so carbon intensive to be an American in the first place, or an Australian, or kind of neck and neck for per capita emissions. Or like, why is it so carbon intensive to have a child in the first place? Like all of these questions go unasked when we do things like the University of London does, which is to give only solutions that can be executed by individuals without systemic change or without systemic demand.
0: I feel like I've had so many conversations where you try and open it up to that wider picture, and people immediately think you're attacking them and go, but I recycle.
2: (laughs) I promise. You know? I mean, that's indicative of a problem and a challenge in our culture. And by our culture, I mostly mean sort of Western wealthy culture. But I, but to an extent, it's worldwide, right? That we don't see ourselves as part of a unit, right? We see ourselves as individuals. And certainly the U.S. has a very strong narrative of individualism, and it's like a big piece of our sort of national myths. But that's a shift that takes time because there's tremendous guilt and shame Um, I think for people who are maybe a little bit older than us, I mean, this is a hard conversation for folks of our parents' generation who are confronting the possibility of a world without grandchildren, feeling like they should have done more, feeling like, you know, they fell asleep on watch. Tremendous anger and grief for people of our generation and younger, feeling like, you know, they were not given a chance. There's a really beautiful testimony on our website by a young woman who was 23 at the time or something, and she says you know, I feel like being able to be, have a child should be everybody's human right. And I feel like that's been taken away from me. And of all of the quotes that I have heard in the course of this project, that one has stuck with me the most, because I think it really exemplifies the degree of grief. I guess the
0: the personal sort of meets the political and this is a really difficult space to navigate because it's such a deeply personal topic. How do you navigate that in the testimonies in the House parties?
3: I think that once we arrived at this position, it became kind of easy to navigate, which is that in this instance, the personal is really not political. The personal is taking place on, on this stage of these political factors, these things beyond our control. We're doing what we can in the political sphere, in the collective sphere, and we're understanding that there is no right answer right that everybody is doing what they can with a relatively foreclosed future with some bad options and that our job is not to prescribe a yes or no answer our job is to say this is really difficult and we need to do it together we need to we need to share these stories and then we need to work like hell for a future that supports us whether we want children biological children we want to adopt or foster we want to be childless That the future that we want to live in is a future that's founded on reproductive justice, racial justice, socioeconomic justice, that every step along the way, we have to reaffirm our commitment to what makes being a human a wonderful thing instead of a trial and a burden.
2: We do occasionally uh, get these like population control missives in our emails, which again, totally miss the point, right? The point isn't that we should be controlling specifically women's, but people's bodies um, and controlling their reproduction. The point is that we should be fixing the problems that make reproduction
3: a challenge. I think you're pointing to this thing, which is that when you take reproduction as this holistic thing, this part of all of our lives, that whether we become biological parents or not, you take the pressure off that individual, that like, will you or won't you yes, there's a right answer, and you probably won't pick it just because that's the nature of the discourse around motherhood specifically, I would argue. When you sit back and, and you hold space and you listen, you get a much richer, much more useful, and much more interesting story.
0: Megan, you were talking a little bit about some of the themes that came up during testimonies. I'd love if you could talk a little bit about that.
2: There's a couple that I really like to talk about because they speak to me and a couple that Josephine really likes to talk about because they speak to her. So this is, this is an easy question. Usually um, there's two big sort of sets of fears uh, on one end of the spectrum is what sort of harm will my child do to the world in terms of carbon emissions and plastic that they produce and, you know, used diapers floating around in the ocean and whatever else. And on the other end of the spectrum is what sort of harm will a hotter, meaner, less stable, less predictable world do to my child? And we try to really help people sit in the second one, right? Both concerns are valid. Obviously, everybody's concerns are valid, whatever they are. But the first one is, you know, again, the fact of having a child and certainly in the United States and Australia, given the levels of consumption and the systems under which we live, right, like you could diminish your carbon footprint to the point of killing yourself and make no impact on sort of the greater trajectory of climate change. So consumption is like it matters, but only in a very limited way.
3: This question of like, what's selfish, right? We hear people attribute themselves um, with selfishness pretty much no matter what they're doing, right? If they're choosing not to have a child, people come in feeling like maybe that's a selfish choice. Some people think that having a child is a selfish thing to do because you're taking resources from other people out of other people's hands. The name-calling selfishness is like is so pervasive, I think, for most women that we, we don't even really notice what it's standing in for. We don't see what's the You know, what's the critique? What's the politics behind it? Whether you have a child or not, you are already feeling this anticipatory grief or this unfolding grief about what's in store for us in our later years and all the younger people we love.
0: The ideas and the themes that Megan and Josephine brought up around grief and the idea of being selfish uh, around this decision hugely resonated with me. Grief in the climate space is is enormous. You know, you look at young people who are trying to change the world and this grief around the fact that their future has been stolen from them in some way through climate change is really hard to see and something that I personally have felt very deeply and still sort of grapple with. The concept of, you know, that selfish decision too, it really resonated me when I think about the conversation I mentioned having with my mum. Not only was it shocking to hear me discuss this concept of going child free because of climate change but it was also really disturbing to her in terms of considerations about my future and what my life would look like and and perhaps some way the joy that i would gain through having kids nicola and i when we talked about this episode and also when i talked to josephine and megan The question around, would you have children? It was really clear that the answer wasn't important. And I didn't want to say whether or not I would have children, uh, weirdly, (laughs) um, because I felt like it would detract from what we're talking about and from that idea. But, you know, this grief, children were always something that I wanted since I was like three years old and never something I questioned. And even when I did, it wasn't so much would or I wouldn't I, it was just kind of, isn't it interesting that I have a choice? great. It's made. Um, and so when I started having this discussion with my mother and she realized that I was deeply conflicted and felt really guilty about the fact that that I wanted children because so many reasons, because of, you know, strange ideas I had about population growth and the fact that I consume and that my children would and waste and all of these things you know the fact that i was i felt this way was crazy to her but also totally understandable and yeah it's just like even talking i find it hard to talk about because this idea of being selfish and the guilt and the the grief is still so present in my own life and in my own considerations around this idea
1: no i think i think you've described it well and i think it's interesting too cuz i could see how the grief and the guilt would also be apparent on the other side of that decision as well, of choosing not to have children. You kind of have to grieve this part of yourself that you thought, you know, as a woman was going to happen with your life and you kind of have to grieve the loss of that acceptance from society as well. So grief is a huge part of it. It's an important part of the conversation. I think people should be aware that when you think about these type of things it does bring up trauma it brings up sadness you know it's no surprise to anyone that the climate space is filled with just exhausted activists and people who are really close to burnout because learning about the fate of your planet in such plain terms is and and still choosing to fight for it it's really hard And so I think even more so when you bring children into it too because that's such a – you're choosing to bring a human into the world, you're choosing to raise them, to teach them.
0: Also, this is a hugely hot topic in so many different avenues. You know, you talk about bodily autonomy, which we mentioned, abortion rights is very controversial in many parts of the world. Like this isn't – something that can be glossed over. There are so many different aspects to it. And it was interesting how freeing I found the idea that Megan and Josephine were saying, where this is a deeply personal decision, this is not a political decision. And I think coming into the interview, I was interested to see how it was political and learning that they really don't see it that way was kind of wonderful for me because it's true, it's not. It shouldn't be. This is a very personal thing and once you take – you know, population arguments out of the equation, which are bogus anyway, which we talk about. It's kind of a um, a weird limbo space in my mind still because of
1: that, but also I feel a lot better. They've kind of gifted you with the language to think about it and to talk about it to other people. I suppose if you reflect on that conversation with your mum, you, it probably was like a chaotic mess of you like stumbling through your feelings and it's all it's hard to it's hard to articulate something that's been subconscious for so long as well like I think even when we have you know in this episode talking about the pressure of motherhood that's such a that's something that's just existed in my head for so long that I haven't actually articulated what the impact is on me and if I actually want kids. It's weird to say, right, you know? It's weird to actually proclaim to the world, like, yes, I do want children or no, I don't. And you're opening yourself up to grief and sadness and a a lot of different emotions.
0: Every friend that I have who has said to me, I'm not sure I want kids, have always quantified it with, I might change my mind or if I'm with someone who wants them, I'll reconsider. It's never been a blanket statement and that's fine. That's good. I don't, I don't think blanket statements really work in life, but it's interesting that there's always a hesitance to be too strong when saying that.
1: I really respect people who are open about it and uh, welcoming when people ask those types of questions and I also think saying I don't know is fine as well like for me I don't know it kind of flip-flops based on what news articles I'm reading about climate change or if I see a kid misbehaving in the street I'm like get that thing away (laughs) from me I don't want to reproduce one of them but I think it's totally okay to not know and to not have a definitive answer and to just kind of sit in the uncomfortable feeling of of knowing that you have the choice and it is yeah it's going to be tough regardless
0: and it's personal to you and you're not beholden to anyone else to make the decision if you have the freedom to make that decision feel free to make it What is the, what's the response to conceivable future being? Have you had negativity?
2: I will say up front that uh, I need to acknowledge that it has gotten a lot better. And this conversation when we started, it was way on the fringes and it is now quite mainstream. And I think we can take some of the credit for that, which, which I'm proud of. But in the beginning, we were intentionally misunderstood and or characterized wrongly, I think, for several reasons. Once we were like, Intentionally conflated with population control folks, you know, and sort of that as we've like worked through the problems with that population conversation, and as other groups like Birth Drake um, have sort of formed around this, I think that the media and sort of public discourse has gotten a little bit more sophisticated in that way. But there is some really interesting backlash that comes from strange places when women start to question social roles right and to sort of point at systems other than ourselves it provokes really deep and profound reactions and so we've been on the receiving end of some of that like in general our twitter feed has been much more humane than i would have expected honestly um and the overwhelming response that we get apart from these outliers though is like sometimes in the thousands of comments on like Facebook articles, like God, I thought I was the only person who felt this way. I mean, it's a primarily a sense of relief, I think, for others. Josephine, you're gonna have to. I just, I just totally blew that answer.
3: <laughs> no, it was good. It was good. I did want to point out that so we got we got in our inbox this one time a, a family portrait of a man and and a woman and their fourteen children, and the the body of the email just said, uh, "Sorry, ladies, the breeders will always win." Which' oh, just like, oh. <laughs> I mean it was like this it was this essential misunderstanding. like that was actually just kind of hilarious, you know, because because he was a misrecognizing what we were talking about, and b it was he was kind of performing his fertility for us in this really goofy way. It's
2: taken a while for the press to sort of warm up to what we're actually saying, and I would go even a little bit farther and say, like, public discourse is not good at listening. But we also know that like, we don't listen to women. We know this from the narratives around sexual assault and what's going on there. But to take conceivable future on its own terms requires that you listen to the terms that we're setting out and that our participants are setting out. And that is, you know, it's, it's a hard thing to do if you think you already know what we're going to say. Absolutely.
0: How about in your, in your own lives? Have everyone been positive when you told them what you were doing?
3: No, and not in predictable ways either. We're far enough out from the early days that I don't get a lot of this kind of thing anymore. But when we first started, and we were still finding our words, just explaining to family friends, especially older family friends, what we were trying to do, we got a lot of just personal pushback. And it was of the nature of what you're saying is an attack on me. As much as we tried to the conversational de escalate talk about the kind of the common sense part, which is that the future is a frightening thing to consider and that we really need to talk about it. A lot of people felt judged and antagonized either for their lack of concern for the issue, the dismissiveness about the seriousness of the crisis, this idea that there are other solutions that we should be engaging in instead, that this is frivolous or, or hysterical or something like that. There was like a lot of A lot of, I don't want to deal with that. Stop trying to make me deal with that. And for the most part, in my personal life, I've backed way off. I know there's people that just don't want to hear about this. But I've also been really happily surprised by people who are able to hear what I was saying and who are ready to contribute their own experience or to just engage with it in an open ended kind of way. I've been a little bit surprised in both categories, like who was open to this and who wasn't, because some climate people too had immediate negative responses to this. And some people who never talk about climate at all, this was the way in for them, with me at least.
2: I, I will emphasize though that I think that grief is a really big factor for lots of people. And it was a factor for people close to me as well. I cannot imagine what it must feel like to have your daughter, your son, your granddaughter, your niece, or someone, you know, have to be grappling with this because I think it provokes a guilt that again is like, it's a systemic problem, which means that any individual person of, you know, either my parents' age or my grandparents' age, right? Like, It's not about individual people, but it is experienced on an individual level. And so that's, I think, partly where those reactions come from and tells me that among the other work that we have to do is some, you know, some healing work around that grief because it's hard stuff. It gets right at the core of what people value most. And no wonder everyone feels protective about their decisions.
0: In terms of movement building with conceivable future, what's your goal? What do you want the impact of your network to be? Everybody always asks this question.
3: Do they? I was sure you were going to ask whether or not we were going to have babies ourselves. <laughs> I was really glad you didn't. That was awesome.
0: <laughs> I mean, if you want to answer that, you can. But I feel like that's a different kind of thing. <laughs> not really. I don't know. For me, it feels like that the answer to the question is less important than the question itself. Ding, ding, ding.
2: Population is an issue to the extent that our consumption is what it is, right? Population, uh, if everybody consumed the way middle class and up Americans consumed, you'd need an additional, what is it, between four and a half and six Earth's worth of resources, right? So you can support a lot more people on the planet if people aren't using so damn much stuff. And so related to that, though, is this impulse to like police women's reproductive bodies rather than look at the fossil fuel industry and the various economic and political institutions that prop it up, right? It is easier to say to however many women are on the planet, like, you should have fewer babies or we're going to take away, you know, your reproductive health care. We're going to do X or we're going to do Y to, you know, finger wag and scold and shame Women than it is to tackle the problems of this that were produced historically, certainly almost exclusively by men. I think that says a lot about where people still think that power is located. And so, you know, the population argument if we had a totally different world in which people were able to access the healthcare that they needed, the contraception that they needed, in which their bodily autonomy was respected, like maybe someday in the future when that is true, then we can talk population, maybe, but it's totally not a relevant thing in my view right now.
3: You often find among people who are are making the shocking claims that we'll have to violate mm-hmm. human rights in order to fix the climate crisis, you often find it correlates really highly with privilege, right? That's the thing that you say when you can sit back in an armchair and really consider this at the highest level. You know, it's it's such an arrogant and such an uninformed thing to say that every mm-hmm. Solution is actually being fought for by people who are directly affected by this and that at no point has any frontliner or grassroots organization ever come up with the brilliant solution of population control, because that is, in essence, like a human rights crime, not a solution to the climate crisis.
0: Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Bad Behaviour. It was absolutely incredible to talk to Megan and Josephine, our first international guests on Bad Behaviour. I encourage everyone to have these conversations with their friends and family. It brings up a lot of different things. It can be a hard conversation to have, but I think it's important to reflect on how climate change affects us in such a personal and deeply emotional way. Check out the testimonies on Conceivable Futures' website and also they have a free and open source house party kit that you can download and use to help you have discussions like these
1: in your own home. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you really enjoyed this episode, then you should check out our Patreon because we have juicy episode extras on there. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. We all
0: misbehave sometimes. Wanna change the world,
1: indulge in some bad.